Welcome to a new episode of 20 and Trying. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Peyton. This week, we continue our conversation about mental health with Amanda Huggins, an anxiety and empowerment coach. Amanda, who personally struggled with her own anxiety during her 20s, broke past her personal fears. Now she has her unique blend of spiritual, scientific, practical, and accessible approaches, which has helped hundreds of clients move past their own anxiety. Amanda now offers workshops and digital courses for clients and is reaching people across the world with her social media community with more than 350,000 followers across TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. In this episode, we talk about what led her to the path of being an anxiety coach, breaking the mold on traditional society post-grad expectations, and even asked her questions pulled from you, our listeners. Before we get into this, we want to emphasize this is not medical advice. This is just three people sitting down to discuss what we believe anxiety is. Hello. Hi. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, especially for our May discussion, our May theme of mental health and mental health awareness. So we're super excited to have you. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Well, we start every episode off with our weekly optimism. So what is something that you're looking forward to this week? My weekly optimism is giving myself a chance to recharge this weekend because May and April have been go, 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 and I need to practice what I preach and just let go for a couple of days. So I'm really excited about that. That's great. We all need that time. Just sit back, relax and recharge for sure. We do. And, you know, it's one thing to weave self-care, relaxation, checking in on yourself throughout the work week. We all should be doing quite a bit more of that, but there's still something really nice about the weekend and just having less responsibility, so much more space. I couldn't agree more. Because we know that like we don't have to do something because even if we're giving ourselves self-care during the week and practicing those tools, it's really hard to kind of shut that piece of your brain off that still says, well, you have things to do. And I think that's why we get the Sunday scaries because we know the weekend's ending. Totally. I, I mean, we could probably have a whole conversation on Sunday scaries <laughs> alone because it's it's an epidemic. Um, and Sunday scaries, it, it's like a big umbrella term for really two main things. There's just the generalized anxiety that we have about, oh, what do I have to get done? Or I don't want to go back to this job that I don't like or whatever. But then for some people, there's also the alcohol-induced Sunday scaries, which is a chemical experience going on in the body that then affects thoughts and emotions. So worst case is some of us get both of it, depending on the weekend we've had, but in a perfect world, we just feel good on Sunday and we're like excited and ready for the week. Exactly. That's one day. I've never, never liked Sundays (laughs) because I've been plagued with the Sunday scary since I was a kid wanting to go to school. I didn't either have my homework done or I just didn't want to go to school the next day. Yeah. yeah, Never my day. What am I looking forward to this week? Oh, there's a lot of things. I recently just rejoined a gym, which I have been like working out at my house, but it's not the same, you know, you got to, you know, Mm -hmm. be there. I just feel like I motivated more. And now that I'm fully vaccinated, we're celebrating my mom's birthday this Friday. So I'm very excited about that. We'll just finally get out of the house this year and just have some dinner and it'll be chill, but it'll be nice to celebrate. So fun. (laughs) Happy birthday, mom. (laughs) I'll let her know you said so. 
I think mine, actually, I know for a fact, mine is my high school best friend is flying into town today and I am picking him up from the airport. I have not seen him since I was a freshman in college. I have graduated college now and he lives in a different country. So I am so beyond excited to see him and we're spending the weekend together. And there are just, you know, that saying like people are in your life for a season or a reason. And he's kind of just like stayed consistently in my life for the past eight years. So I am so beyond excited. I can't wait. Oh, she was telling me too the other day about it. I'm so excited for you guys. You guys are gonna have a great time. Uh, that's the best person. So you need to surround yourself with positive people. Oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. So let's get into a little bit about you. And since all of our questions this month are going to be dedicated to, you know, mental health and regarding mental health, we want to know why you think it's important to speak openly about mental health. Oh, I was just having this conversation with someone actually yesterday and we're in a really cool period of time. It's hard for a lot of reasons, but it's cool in another sense, because we're becoming more comfortable talking about our mental health and it's really important that we do because the, the conversation I was having yesterday was one of my dear friends who he, he refers to himself as an anxiety thriver, which I absolutely love. He was saying the first moment that he realized, oh, wow, I'm not alone in this was when he heard someone else share their story and it inspired him to actually start checking in on his mental health. And I, I share that experience in my own life. And I think anxiety and, and any sort of mental health struggle, it can feel like such a like siloed experience. Like you're alone. You're the only person that's going through this, or you don't want to share and be judged. The truth is we're all walking around with the same emotions and feelings, just in different bodies mm. with different experiences, but that, that core understanding of anxiety or mental health struggles, so many people share. And if we can kind of unite in that understanding, like, Hey, not only am I not alone, it's not weird. There's nothing wrong with me. Right. The sooner we can heal. Absolutely. That's something that's really similar because when we're feeling these feelings, it's like we have this strange sense of, am I normal for feeling these feelings? And of course you are. I, we have to view mental health as just a different component of our health and not like totally. something's wrong. So I think discussions like this are really important because it can convey that sense of while maybe what you're going through in particular is very personalized, there are still other people who understand what you're going through, that there are people who you can talk to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I always love the analogy of mental health to a common cold and we're moving past this stigma, but it, you can have a cold, right? And that doesn't mean you're sick for the rest of your life. When you have a cold, maybe the sniffles or some allergies, you take care of yourself. You call out of work, you do what you need to do to nourish your mind, your body, you sleep, and then you start to feel better. Some colds last longer, some are pretty quick. Mental health is the same thing. And it's, it's wild that we haven't been taking that same approach, but I do think that we're, we're warming up to it where it's like, okay, I'm feeling a little down today. I have a met, I have an emotional cold today. What do mm -hmm. I do about that? I, I think we're getting there though. I really do. I like that. The emotional cold, because yeah. it's true. there are times where it's like, I don't have to be physically sick. Like I can just not feel good in my mind and I can't do anything. Yeah. So I think the more, like you said, the more we talk about it and the more that we 
acknowledge it in a healthy way, the more it's going to get talked about and integrated into our lives. Yeah, that's exactly it. So Amanda, you are an anxiety coach and you help others with their personal healing journey. So we're curious, what motivated you to start helping people in this capacity? Yeah. So I, for a really long time, didn't realize that what was going on, the emotional, (laughs) mental colds that I was experiencing was anxiety. I just thought that that's how you were supposed to feel as an adult. And so when I was in my early, mid, and honestly, kind of even late 20s. I was going through at first pretty mild, but then they became more and more serious bouts of anxiety and then depression. And those were primarily linked, or I thought at the time that they were exclusively linked to jobs or career. Uh, And then I had a really toxic, manipulative relationship. And I was like, oh, well, that's the thing. Once that's gone, I'll feel better. And there's some truth to that when we edit the toxicity in our surroundings, whether that is a job or a person or people, you can, you will start to feel better, but you're still left with whatever was there before. And so there were a couple of smaller wake-up calls. It wasn't one big one. It was more like a stream of just having a really bad two or three years where I was getting really frustrated with the information that was available. Therapy was incredible, but I I was starting to hit a stopping point where I was like, I want more tools. I don't want to just talk because I want to move forward from here. And there's so many self-help books on the market, but I felt like I was reading them and then I wasn't doing anything because there was almost too much information and not enough like steps Right. Like I didn't know mm-hmm. what to do after. So it'd feel worse. Like, God, I'm, I'm consuming all of this stuff and I still can't figure it out. So I wound up just studying a bunch of different um, disciplines from neural reprogramming and neuroplasticity, like how we change our brain to not go into story and negative thinking. I wound up hiring my own coach that really helped me like stand in myself and in my power. And then of course, I so I call my work scientific spiritual tactics. That's the scientific and the tactical. And then the spiritual element is practices like meditation, thought creation, timeline jumping, like who do I want to be and how can I be that person now? And that was kind of what created like the track for me because I was like, oh, this is what I wanted, but all of that doesn't exist in one place. And a lot of people could benefit from it. So I'm just going to do it. I'll, I'll try at least to bring that to people. And it it unfolded. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> it unfolded into just the most fulfilling career of my lifetime. I love that. The next question was actually about your approaches, the scientific, spiritual, and tactical. Now, when you are using those, is it like a process? Do you put it all together or do you spend like one day I'm going to be, you know, focusing on the scientific aspects one day, the spiritual or, or is it all together? That's an excellent question. I don't think anyone's ever asked that. So the way that I work, at least with one-on-one clients, I mean, the short answer is It's kind of all of it in different parts of our work or our conversation. With one-on-one work, everyone grounds down in like anxiety management 101, which typically leans more scientific in the beginning. And I think that's the place where at least the clients that I work with like to start. It's like, okay, what's going on with my brain? I want to understand why it does the things that it does. Yes. And then we go from there. And it's like, as we start to develop more understanding of self, more ownership of our thoughts, that's where we can then from like a safe place, look at 
well, where do I want to go next? Who do I want to be? Because I found in my own experience, it becomes almost, and I'm just speaking for myself, it almost became harmful for me to think about like, who do I want to be when I was hyper anxious and depressed? Because then I just went into judgment. My immediate thought was I'll never be that. So I had to build up my worth first before I could really do any of that more like expansive thinking. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And Amanda, you mentioned something actually in our previous question that you thought that what you were feeling was just like life in your twenties and what you were supposed to feel as an adult. So can you a little explain though, because obviously our podcast is called 20 and trying. So our audience is 20 somethings who are like navigating their life. And if they are feeling this, can you explain a little bit about a, why these feelings aren't, it's just not life. And then what are some tips that we can give to our audience who may be battling anxiety? Yeah. Oh man. I'm so glad you guys do this podcast. Um, I wish it was around when I was in my 20s. So I'll speak from my experience, but I know that there are a lot of people who identify with this. And I just, when I grew up and I had, I have a great family. I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense. But even so, there's still like just societal expectations for what you are quote unquote supposed to do. Like Mm -hmm. go to school, graduate. If you don't go to grad school, like get a job, get promotions, find a husband or wife or whatever, get married, have babies, retire, have grandkids, and then you're done. Maybe travel a little in there. And like, that's an excellent life, but that never really excited me, at least not in that order. And so that like path alone, I was like, God, this is so boring, man. I I, like, what, what else is there? But I, I didn't know because there weren't conversations or like resources at that point in time for me to even figure out what it is I wanted to do. So I kind of just like fell into a career and I was, I was good at it. I was in uh, tech and marketing, but it became something that I gave like 90% of myself over to. And there was nothing left for me at the end of the day. So the, the remaining 10% was maybe friends and my dog. So I was always running at like negative zero and you can only do that for so long. And so it became this like kind of slow burn awakening where I was like, wow, okay, first of all, my struggle is like, I'm not supposed to be working this hard. Like, why is all of my identity in just one thing that that doesn't eat, that doesn't excite me. So why am I doing it? Then it's this larger question. Like, what am I supposed to do next? How do I even figure that out? And I wish there was a clear cut answer for that, but there's not, and there shouldn't be because we're all going to be really different. So if I could make any suggestions, it would be if you're recognizing like, okay, there's a part of my life or maybe, maybe it is career for some listeners. Maybe it's the relationship or the city they're living in or their friendships. If something is consistently feeling like just not right and you feel it in your body, well, I don't encourage you to rush to make any decisions unless you want to and then go for it, but make sure you're grounded when you do it. Get curious about that. So often when we like feel ourselves stuck, we shut down and we accept the circumstances. It's like, well, I guess this is life. Like, I guess this is what being an adult is. Don't accept that. But in that kind of non-acceptance, stay curious and ask yourself big questions. Like pretend there aren't rules. What would I want to do? Do I know how to do that yet? No? Cool. How would I figure out how to do the thing I want to do? And when you're in this like question asking phase, don't worry about money. Don't worry about the how, because when we get so caught up in how am I going to get out of this situation, 
we're going to nitpick for every reason not to leave or not to change something. So start with the big questions and then scale backwards. And then the thing that underscores all of that is while you're in this period of either figuring yourself out or breaking out of some sort of like framework, take care of yourself in the process. Because that was the one thing I did not do. And I would numb and numb and numb. I was a huge party girl. And I still love a drink. I love to see my friends, but like in a normal way now. Mm -hmm. So if I could go back, I would probably not numb as much. I would definitely take care of myself more. I would also probably have been a little bit more clear with my social circles and the people that were influencing me, because that's like the sneaky one is if you have this idea to break out of something that's detrimental to your mental health, whether it's your job or relationship, whatever, there's going to be people who may have your best interest in mind because they love you, but their advice still is not going to be right for you necessarily. And so you've got to be really like laser focused on what you want for you. And then curious as you're figuring that stuff out, you know? That just hit me so hard. That was like, boom, 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 (laughs) everything in my life. Like, no, it's true though. Like, I think bringing it back to what you said of how you envisioned your life. I think a lot of us grew up with that same mentality, you know? Oh, I know I did. Yeah. You know, you you get a job or you go to grad school and you get married and you have to, and that's your life. And I think what's great about right now is that I think a lot of people are starting to break away from that mold. And a lot of people are starting to realize like, I don't really want this. And like, why should I have to do this? Just because this has been the way for so long. And there are goals that we make and there are dreams that we have as kids, I think, and like young adults, whatever. And then I think that one day, maybe you'll achieve it. Maybe you won't, maybe you'll be on the precipice of it. And then you're like, this isn't really what I want. So I think Mm -hmm. being open to like, that newfound experience, that new interest, that new passion that just came out of the woodwork or that whatever it is, and just being curious and open to it, your life might be completely different than you ever imagined it, but it might be better for you because you'll be more happy. 100%. I was also just talking about this yesterday in one of my group programs. And what I was saying, because the group uh, skews a little bit younger, Mm -hmm. I would say, and I, I work with all ages. I can't tell you how many 50 and 60 year old men and women I have worked with that again, similar to us have weren't really offered any other option, except like you follow this format, but I worked with these people who are incredible, brilliant, talented hearts of gold. And yet they're in the career that they quote unquote wanted. They have the house or the family or the whatever, but they don't feel connected to a lot of it. They feel connected to their family, but they don't feel happy generally. Right. They're just not what they thought. And it's because, exactly. And it's because when we're told what whatever age it is that people start planting in our brains, like you have to figure your life out already. We're told typically to work towards like title or money or like some emblem of success, mm-hmm. but it never includes feeling. So if you're thinking about who do I want to be when I'm 50, I don't want you to think yet about the title necessarily. I want you to think about how you want to feel and the quality of life that you will have. And then you can start to look at, well, what things will lead me to that? And that is a much easier way to guarantee, well, easy is subjective, right? But that's a clearer way to guarantee a life that you're going to love rather than one that you're just kind of like groundhog daying through the whole time, right. you know? Yeah. Right. It's hard because we measure success based off of like data. You know, we can gauge how we're doing based off of the title or the money that we're making. 
and things that we can actually see. And I think, again, this is like why having conversations about mental health is so difficult because you can't see it. Like you can't Mm. see emotion. I mean, I guess you can see emotion on people's faces, but you can't see how people are really feeling inside of their head. And that's why it's so difficult. And it's also hard to, I think, even admit to yourself sometimes, like, I'm not happy doing X, Y, and Z. I think maybe I'd be happy if I would do like ABC instead, but that's also really scary. And getting over that fear of admitting that you're not doing what you want to do and maybe you need a change is half the battle in and of itself. Fear of failure because you have this thought in your mind that I'm going to achieve this and then you didn't. And so you have- yeah, you have that fear. And that is a battle. Absolutely. I think so. You know, as much as I say, I hate like quotes and truisms, I say them a lot, but like, there's this one line you guys have, I'm sure you've heard it. It's whether you think you can, or you can't, you're right. And I mean, that, that is quite literally like how we relate to failure. If you decide I'm not going to fail at this, even if you make a million screw-ups along the way, you still haven't failed. And going back to what you just said, Charlotte, like when I realized like, okay, I want to be a coach. I want to help people with this. That was the scariest admittance to myself. I think that was actually scarier than recognizing like I just want support with my mental health because now all of a sudden, like I had to figure out the rest of my life. It wasn't going to get handed to me from like the little things like healthcare and like taxes to the big things like a business. And you've got to lean into support. I think that's the other thing that we forget when we are starting to choose for ourselves is even when you make that choice, oh, maybe this is the direction I want to go, or maybe this is what I want to do for myself. You don't have to do it alone. That can be with a mentor, that can be with a business partner, that can be with whatever. And it will be a scary process. Like failure is always going to be there. You're going to fail in like a traditional job. You're going to fail in a healthy relationship sometimes, but it's, it's how you orient to it. And do you let the failure teach you something and then you grow? Or do you let the failure knock you right back into that same hole? And so that becomes like a choice that we have to make kind of every day. It's true. Because failure is inevitable within life. Like you said, you're going to fail in things. It's just whether you're going to embrace it or you're just going to let it continue to knock you down and knock you down. And some people will, but, and that's when, when you need that support, like you said, because if you're going it alone and you just keep getting knocked down, getting knocked down, you need someone there to be like, okay, you can get back up. You got Mm -hmm. this. And so I think that that is very essential to have that support and not go alone. So how do you think, having coaching and other practices that are solely dedicated to improving mental health struggles will ultimately help this stigma that's surrounding mental health. I think as we kind of mentioned before, it's the visibility piece. The louder we can bang the drum about, hey, this is what, and and anxiety is such an interesting corner of the mental health world because it is so varied for so many different people. The way that I talk to clients and anyone who will listen about it is I look at anxiety as an umbrella term. I like to think about it as the word that we use or the physical response that is a result of a deeper emotional experience. So for me, yes, I had severe anxiety and panic attacks, but that wasn't like 
coming out of nowhere. That was unprocessed trauma. That was me uh, not standing up for myself. That was me overworking and not nourishing my body. Like there were all of these messages that were trying to come out and they were coming out through anxiety. But my experience is going to be very different than a client's and how it shows up for them. So the more we can just talk about the varied experiences and offer different approaches, the better off we are all going to be because people need, like not everyone heals in the same way. Not everyone learns in the same way. I've been very fortunate with clients that I've worked with. And also that's business strategy, right? It's like, I'll work with the people I know that I can support, but there's going to be people who are like, yeah, I want none of the spiritual stuff. I don't care about meditate. I mean, have fun trying to heal anxiety without like figuring out how to meditate and breathe because it's critical to a certain degree. But like, there's going to be another coach who can help you in a totally different way. And I love that. So the more we can just be loud about it, the more access points there are to people who actually need the help support. I'm trying not to say help because I feel like it's becoming a really condescending word. I guess on the conversation then about visibility and having these conversations, your bio mentions a new show coming soon. So can you tell us a little bit about this and how you think it will help future listeners? Yeah. So this is something that I've been dragging my feet on for quite a while. (laughs) My podcast should be out by this summer. So June, 2021 aiming for like early congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) It's going to be called anxiety talks. And it, my goal is to not just have me on it when I'm doing solo episodes, it'll be more like coachy and here's what to do and more tactical, but I have a boatload of guests, a couple we've already finished that everyone's really, really different and their stories and how they work through things are very different, but there's commonality between all of them. And it's the experience or the struggle that they've gone through and the story of them on the rise. And I think that's also really important to message to people is like, yes, okay, we're talking about it, but also like we're talking about I don't want to say life after anxiety because you're never going to get rid of anxiety. You can't, it's, it's an instinct and we need it, but the psychosocial anxiety we experience half of that, we're just making up problems for ourselves. So we also want to message like, here's what happens when you heal from that, or when you know how to work through that. You're already going to have two listeners because (laughs) I know so excited (laughs) because it's so, it's so important to be able to provide that support. Like you said, and to have a podcast is perfect because sometimes when somebody's really down and I just need something right now, like I need to feel like I can relate to somebody. I need to feel uplifted by hearing their stories, just turn it on. And you know, you can learn a lot and you can also be motivated. Yeah. And you don't have to leave your bed. Like I know best of both worlds. Exactly. (laughs) My podcasts are the best. People need to start listening to them. All righty. So we asked some of our listeners yesterday on our social media, provide us with some questions they had regarding anxiety. And we thought that you could answer them for us. That's okay. Okay. So the first one, do you think what we eat and what we drink plays a part in our anxiety symptoms? Oh my God, 100%. So in terms of what we drink, there's the obvious things like caffeine. I'll be perfectly honest. I'm sure that I still take in way too much caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we you also know too. that alcohol, right? It's hard not to. Tea for me is not as good as coffee. So I don't know what to do about that. Same. Absolutely not. I, I just like, I, I've accepted it. I'm not going to give it up. But you know, there are pretty adverse effects from 
getting too drunk. We know this, we've all felt it. It's not great. That was one thing that I was, I knew, and I just totally disrespected about myself, especially in my early twenties. Looking back, I do wish that I maybe cooled it a little bit because it wasn't just Sunday scaries after a while. It was week-long scaries and then depression. And then in terms of food, there's this really good book called The Mind-Gut Connection that goes into hyper deep detail about what's actually happening because basically, and you might've heard this phrase, like our brain is in our gut. Obviously we have our own brain, but in terms of the, the messages that the gut and the heart send to the brain, really powerful. And just want to be careful with when you look at mind gut connection. So yes, there's absolutely a connection with food, but don't stress yourself out too much about it. McDonald's probably is not going to be the best for your brain, right? It's hyper processed. Do I still have McDonald's once in a while? 100%. (laughs) Uh, So it's not about like even eliminating things that are quote unquote bad for you, because if you want to indulge, who am I to tell you not to do that, but just be conscious of it. Right. So, so yes, there is most certainly a connection. It's also hard because I know when I'm feeling kind of sad or I'm having my own emotional cold, I will want chocolate. I will want those French fries. And then it's just like this crazy cycle because I know when I eat too much sugar, my brain feels swollen and it actually hurts and, or like my body hurts. And then that plays a bigger role in how I'm feeling. So it is just a dangerous cycle. But while it's important to acknowledge that the food that we put into our body directly affects the way that we feel, we also just have to do everything in moderation. I think just being cognizant of the effect it has on your body. Exactly. So whether you want it, you have it. And when you don't, you don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. So just knowing that it, it does connect. Totally. So what is the average age group for anxiety? Ooh, you are asking that question at a great time because I was just doing an immense amount of research on that because I'm writing a book and we're kind of targeting the different demos. I I went into this originally planning like, okay, millennials, because there's so much research to show that millennials are the most anxious generation to date, which is true. And anxiety affects over 40 million adults in the US, I believe that stat is like way higher at this point. And I think that was a 2017 or 19 study. But what's really interesting and what we're now only just starting to study is Zillennials and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. And it's a whole different ballgame because we all grew up with social media, but the intensity of social media that Gen Z is experiencing. And when you combine that with the pandemic, where we are so limited in interpersonal um, actions or activity. There's something missing there. We need that social interaction. And so when you're combining all of these factors, social media, the pandemic, just the way that our society is structured, while they have not yet surpassed millennials, Gen Z is tracking to become the most anxious generation. Um, Yeah, And, and it makes sense. But what is really interesting is Gen Z in one of these studies, I think it was a psychology today or American psychological association, forget which one, um, one probably linked to the other. I'll send you the link. Gen Z is more likely to seek 
therapy or to seek outside help, they're a little bit more likely to talk about their mental health struggles. So I think that's a really beautiful silver lining is while we're all running around with anxiety, there are shifts that are beginning to happen. You could even argue because of social media. So it becomes like this double-edged sword in a sense, you know? Yeah. I think social media in general is, there's a lot of elements to it where it is a double-edged sword where you can have access to a lot of information, a lot of information that you wouldn't normally instantaneously. You also can have a lot of different support Mm -hmm. um, and different you know, Instagram, like positivity, blah, 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 podcast, stuff like that. But your Instagram is a perfect example. Right. Right. And, but there's also a lot of harm to seeing certain influencers Mm -hmm. not using, and I sound like a broken record at this point, but not using their platform, how that, how they should Uh, healthy way. I Um, will not shut up about that. Like I try not to be on this soapbox for too long, but like when it comes to mental health and social, not even social media comparison, because like we already know about that. It's like looking at so-and-so, maybe it's someone you know, or like a micro-influencer or whatever. What I think is sometimes more dangerous are the more lifestyle-y influencers, some even in the mental health space that are like, oh, love and light only and positive vibes only. And it's like, honeys, that is so dangerous because that is not accessible and it's not real. It's mm-hmm. not real. Um, so I think it can create just like a really weird rabbit hole sometimes because you seek positivity and then you get like a weird kind of positivity that right. that's not real. Yeah. I mean, it's called toxic positivity for a reason. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's so interesting. And I think we can tie this back to what you said earlier that we think that there's this set path that we have to follow. You go to school, you graduate, either you go on to grad school or you get a job and then you accomplish whatever adulting quote unquote is. But millennials, zillennials, and now definitely Gen Z are finally questioning that path. Mm-hmm. And I think because we are questioning it, we are now faced with this like weird, overwhelming sense of, oh my God, did I do the right thing? Or should I have just done with what society has told me to do? And it's just this crazy rabbit hole because it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Also, how many animals can I use in this analogy? (laughs) Um, But it's true because we're finally questioning things. But I think then when you question life in general, that's, um, that's totally anxiety provoking. It is. It just becomes a question of what is the lesser of two evils? Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, we're going to have anxiety no matter what. You're not going to be able to escape it. You know, there's a certain amount of anxiety that is good anxiety. I had anxiety Mm -hmm. yesterday. Like I, I was so overwhelmed with really exciting projects coming up. And it was more of the like, God, like, how am I going to figure all this out? And there's so much to do and I have to hire people and I don't know how to do that. But I would rather have that anxiety and I would rather have gone through the struggle of building my own business and moving everywhere by myself and breaking up from talk. I would rather have that path as hard as it's been sometimes than still be locked into something that was never going to make me happy. And then I have anxiety in that. You know what I mean? So it is messy. No matter, life is messy, mm-hmm. right? But messy doesn't have to mean bad. And scary doesn't have to mean bad. Things can be incre- 
I, I love my life. My life is incredible right now. And I, I say that with like as much humility as possible. And yet, oh my God, my life is so stressful, but it's, it's a good kind. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's choose, it's choose your adventure. So then on that note, how can we differentiate from good anxiety versus bad anxiety? So you've got to get really curious about A, where the anxiety is coming from and B, if there is an action or a lesson in it. So I'll give you two examples of like in air quotes, good anxiety. (laughs) He'll never listen to this. I just broke up with someone and for the last two months of our relationship, I was really, I wasn't unhappy, good guy, nice guy, had a great time, smart, whatever, but something just like felt off in me. And it started to to turn into like really intense daily anxiety, at least in the mornings. And I was like, okay, you need to address this, Amanda, like what's going on. And I knew what it was. It was, I wasn't being seen emotionally in the way that I want. And that's okay. Like we're not mad at him. He can't give me what I need, but that anxiety was there because I was ignoring that consciously. So my body was trying to be like, yo, you got to figure this out because we're not doing well with this person right now. So you could argue like the experience of that is not super fun. No one loves a breakup, but that would be good anxiety for me. That was an excellent decision. I feel great now where with your body. And exactly. And it was an action. Like it told me what I needed to do. And, and my mind was ignoring. It. I was like, no, things will change. Like the classic girl thing. No, 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 no. You can't change anybody. No, you can't. And I know that. Right. So, of course we all do, but we want a different, yeah. we want a different outcome and our brain's going to want that, but your body, you can't, you can't say no to. You can. And so that's a good anxiety when you can look for, listen to, and process the action. I don't want to even label it as bad, but like a less helpful anxiety Mm -hmm. would be the classic, like, does everyone hate me? Or why does everyone hate me? Are my friends mad at me? And you spin and you spin and you spin in that. And there's not external action because the external action, asking your friends potentially for the millionth time, are you mad at me? Do you hate me? It's only going to give you more of that anxiety in all likelihood, but how you would turn that anxious experience into something good or productive would actually be to ask deeper questions. What part of me believes that I can't be loved, liked, or accepted by people in my life? And then that's what you work through. Mm -hmm. So I kind of take that back a little bit. Like there isn't really a bad anxiety, but there's ones that have much more clear action and ones that Mm -hmm. you just got to be with for a little bit longer. Yeah. A little more the helpful versus the harmful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So what steps can we take to prevent an anxiety attack? And what are some tools that we, that we could use to help someone who is going through an anxiety attack near us? Yeah. For you personally, let me get clear on what would be the We already know what our triggers are. Like, yeah, I'm sure you both know right now what the main sources of anxiety are in your life. You do. You also know the story that you probably go to or the main body or mind response that you autopilot to when you're around or in that trigger. So get the lay of the land first. What are my anxieties? What are the triggers? And what are the stories? And then the work is proactively thinking about what your truth is that you need to come back to. And I want to be really clear that truth does not mean like hopeless optimism. So 
I mean, we can use a relationship example. Um, if you are with someone, maybe not even toxic, just not super great. You know it, you're not happy in the relationship. The story might be, oh, it's not that great, but like maybe it'll change. And then you have that body response. You've got to come back to a truth statement like, this is not working for me right now and I need to figure out why. So truth statement wouldn't be like full swing positive, like, but it will work out. Or like everything's amazing um, because I think that can be really damaging. So we've got to get in the practice of orienting ourselves back to truth because the mind is wired and I won't get into like all of the science behind this, but our mind is wired to look out for the negative. So we've got to train ourselves proactively to seek truth and then we can look towards positive, but going full swing positive is kind of like cheating yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah. 100%. Trying to keep it at like a high level, but that would be the basics. And then how you support someone, because we all know someone who's going through something two things here. One, we already know who our anxious friends are. Think about the friends who don't come across as anxious, like the super happy ones or the moms of the group or the ones that have it all together. Check in on them sometimes. They actually may hate it face-to-face and verbally, but there's going to be a part of them inside deeper that's like, huh, okay, so people do check in, people do care. And the other piece to this is the languaging that you use. Because, and I'll speak from my own experience, but I think there might be universality here is no one wants to feel babied. Like, okay, let me know if you need anything. And it's the worst because also, Uh, do you know what you need when you're in an anxiety, a moment of anxiety? Nope. Like, how do you know that that question would get me so mad? I'm like, I that's why I'm anxious. I don't know what I need. Like, why are you asking questions? Like I can't. the helicopter friends that like you do something and they're like, what are you doing? Or like, why are you doing this? Well, I'm like, yo, it, it's, Hell. it's too much energy. It is too much energy. <laughs> yeah. So don't do that. Yeah, definitely <laughs> don't. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't say easier. Like the more supportive thing is in your own language, let someone know that you are there for them. So you stand back openly and let them kind of direct what they need as that comes up. You know, like, hey, I know that this is a tough time. If you ever want to talk, I'm here. Or I maybe I can't understand, but I'm here to support however, however that works out for you. And like kind of a sidebar on that is avoid the one-upping. Sometimes we do that trying to match someone And that's amazing when you can have dialogue, but unless the person is open to dialogue, just say like, oh, well, I have anxiety too. And like, here's what happened. It can either feel like one upping or it becomes misery loves company. And now we have two Mm. people drowning in their sorrow instead of one person standing by as support and the other one having some space to work on themselves. Right. Absolutely. I agree. And I think also not pushing somebody to have to talk about it. Yes. hundred percent. Like, and like you were saying with the one up being like, we've had this discussion before in the podcast. I think a lot of people just, when you're going through things, you want to relate and maybe you've had a similar situation and they want to be there. And I, and I know a lot of people, it comes from a place of love and wanting to help, Totally, but it can fall into that. Also, like, this isn't about you yeah. type thing, or it's, Oh, we're both going to sit here and just misery loves company, which is also, yeah, I can't stand for. So absolutely. Those are all big ones. Yeah, totally. So shifting gears to our final question, uh, how can I overcome workplace anxiety slash imposter syndrome? 
Oh my God, how much time do we have? You know, imposter syndrome, I'm going to start with sounding like a Debbie Downer, but I promise I'm not going to stay here. You're going to have imposter syndrome many different points of time in your life. I would be absolutely lying if I said I don't get imposter syndrome from time to time. And the difference is now versus where I was and now where I meet clients to work on it. When it comes up for me now, it's like, okay, like we know that this is a story. We know that this also is indicative that you might be like on a growth edge. So it's you warming up to more of who you're becoming. But that's that's me now. Like when I was in imposter syndrome at jobs that I was good at, at least okay at, it was coming up incessantly for two reasons. And and so for listeners, like, I want you to think about, just start with why. Is this coming more from my discomfort with this role, space, or industry in general? And is there something for me to look at there? Or is this coming from worth? And it's it's likely it's going to be a combination of two, but it doesn't matter how many accolades you get or how many people that are like, no, you're, you're a rock star. You're this, you're that. You've got to believe that first. When we don't believe that in ourselves, that's when the imposter syndrome kicks in. And we tend to associate imposter syndrome with work specifically. That's just like one of the places that it pops its head out. All it is, is worth and believing in ourselves. So the cool thing about working on imposter syndrome is you don't have to just work on it within career. You can work on it with your inner dialogue about your physical body, about how you show up in social situations, how you treat yourself behind closed doors, like getting in that practice of not being your own cheerleader from like a a fake place, but really dropping into loving inner dialogue about how great and uh, how much potential you actually have in all moments. Even if you just worked on your inner dialogue, doing some mirror work, the energy of that is going to start transferring over into career. But if you are working on your dialogue at all in all of the different areas of your life, you know, no, I love that because I think it is specifically right now or, you know, because this is sort of kind of new. Like, I feel like a lot of people, this wasn't something imposter syndrome that a lot of people talked about for a long time. And I think it is mainly associated with career, but I like that you're calling attention to we could feel like imposters in any point of our life. And if you're going to work on it in your career, you might as well work on it within the other aspects. That's exactly it. So thank you for for answering those questions. I hope the people who asked them will have had some great answers. I know I learned a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So now that brings us to our last, last question of the podcast is how we are going to end our, our uh, podcast this month. So what is one piece of advice you have for someone who is struggling with mental health issues or anxiety, and that doesn't feel like anything can help them be nicer to yourself and drop the judgment. And I know that that sounds pretty trite or like almost too simple, Again, simple, but not easy. If we even pulled back on just the judgment, we would be in a hell of a lot better of a place. When we judge ourselves for having a certain feeling that is normal and human, it makes it all that much harder to acknowledge to ourselves that we're struggling, to reach out for help, to look for things in the real world that will bring us joy because our energy is low. So work on the judgment voice. And I don't care if you have to do it with gritted teeth, like, okay, fine. Maybe I don't suck. And maybe I'm kind of okay. Like, great. Start there. Be gritted teeth and annoyed that you have to not judge yourself. I don't care where you start, but start. You will find you start to become nicer to yourself because we do things that feel better. 
that feel good. So the more nice we are to ourselves, the more it feels good, the more it's going to become a pattern. You just have to start and do it in your own voice. Do not copy the way that someone on social media talks about him or herself and their mental health or how your friend does it. I speak to myself like an idiot. I'm like, girl, get it together. We are not doing this today. You are me. Like I use my own voice when I talk to myself. If I said, oh honey, we love this today. Like that's not going to resonate because that's just not my core personality. So figure out what works for you in your voice, make it real. And it's okay if you have resistance, just stay committed to the practice of releasing the judgment. Oh, I needed that. That's good. I needed this whole episode. This was, and I, again, I sound like a broken record. I say this every time, but I do feel like this is literally free therapy. Every time I talk to a new person on this podcast, I love it. It's amazing. I'm like, and I learned so much and I meet such incredible people and you are definitely doing the rings is one of my favorite episodes ever. Yes. Love that. This is so great. Amazing. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank, thank you so for- much for being a guest. <laughs> And for speaking just so candidly about mental health, because yes, it's like our May theme. It's not just like something that we're just doing for a month. Cause I think kind of all of our, all of our interviews, all of our topics somehow kind of incorporate elements of mental health, but we really want to open the dialogue more for people to feel comfortable and to acknowledge like, you know, maybe I'm not having the best day. Maybe I'm not having the best week. Maybe I'm not having the best year which I know we can all relate to this past year, but there's still so many things to celebrate. There's tools that we can use to, you know, end our little emotional colds. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, love that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 20 and Trying. You can follow Amanda on Instagram and TikTok at It's Amanda Huggins. We are also including the link to the study we spoke about in the episode in our show notes and a link to a guided meditation from Amanda. Remember to follow 20 and Trying on Instagram at 20andtrying.podcast. You can also join our Facebook group where we discuss 20-something related topics and we post some really great memes as well. Make sure to also check out our newly launched website, 20 trying podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. Bye.